welcome to the Hungry Authors Podcast. A hungry author is someone who is, quite simply, hungry for it. They're willing to do what it takes to achieve their writing dreams. If that resonates, you're in the right place. I'm Ariel. And I'm Liz. We're two book coaches, editors, and writers here to help you get there. We interview experts and chat about all things publishing and writing to educate and build a community of successful writers, whatever that means to you. Welcome. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. We are so excited to have Jane Friedman with us today. Thank you so much, Jane, for being here. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. Yes, welcome to Jane. And guys, if you can't tell, I have a pretty bad cold, so I will not be a big part of this episode. (laughs) Apologies for that. But Jane, please go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience. So my name is Jane Friedman, and I've been working in the publishing industry for about 25 years. Uh, This has been my only career. I started while I was still in college. Uh, I entered through traditional book publishing segued into magazine publishing, uh, spent a couple years as a writing and publishing professor, um, spent a couple years at a literary journal. And since 2014, I've been a full-time writer uh, and educator. I have a paid newsletter about the publishing industry called The Hot Sheet. So for the last 10 years, I've been on my own, um, but definitely you know, in touch with what's happening in all sectors of primarily book publishing, but also by extension, digital media, um, the creator economy, uh, a little bit of magazines and so on. That's so neat. And something that I, you know, admire about you is that you've been able to kind of create this niche for yourself, you know, where you are a commentator and an expert on the industry itself. I feel like usually, you know, within the industry, we have people who are kind of experts in content areas and you've kind of spun that around and said, no, I, I'm an expert in the publishing industry. And I think that makes, you know, so much of what you share incredibly valuable. And we just, we appreciate your voice so much because of that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm particularly interested in the business side and how writers and publishers both earn money, uh, what the profit and the loss is like and how that changes because of the digital age. Yeah. And that's such a huge gift to authors because I know a lot of authors are not familiar with the business side of publishing and yet it has such an incredible impact on the real life, you know, acquisitions process and their own prospects for being able to publish a book and kind of play in that space. Um, well, I'd love to dive right in with something that happened quite recently to you. Um, so you had a brush recently with AI and you discovered some books on Amazon. Could you kind of share a little bit about that and, and what happened there? Sure. Um, I was actually at a writing conference when I discovered this, I was checking my email and had a, had a message from somebody who was thinking about taking one of my classes and before enrolling, they just kind of wanted to check out what I had written and published first, um, maybe because the book would have answered whatever questions they had that was in the class, which isn't unusual. Books are kind of the entry point for a lot of people who are new to my um, material or new to my ideas. And so she went to Amazon as a search engine, as people do, especially if you're looking for books. And she turned up some titles that had my name on them. They were about writing and publishing. But when she took a closer look, it just looked a little odd to her. Like my name was there, but not my photo. There was no bio. Um, 
And eventually she decided these may not be legitimate. And thank God she wrote me to say, I think you should take a look. And I did. And indeed, they were not any sort of material I had consented to. Um, I had no clue that they were there. She pointed to two specific books. And when I went over to my Goodreads profile, and for those who don't know, Amazon automatically loads books onto your Goodreads profile. If it if your name's attached to it, you don't get alerted. There's like no, like they just appear one day and you might not even know unless you check. So I looked at my Goodreads profile and there were, there were like half a dozen books, not just two, um, all kind of on a similar theme, like how to write and publish eBooks and make money. And so when I took a look at the opening pages of these books and I read the bio statement for myself, which actually it wasn't copy and pasted from my site. It was it was my bio. It was just a generic version of my bio. Um, and it made me feel like this had been AI generated because, you know, like a curious person, I have used ChatGPT. Um, I've used vanity prompts asking it, you know, what would Jane Friedman say about this or that in the writing space? And, you know, the books read very similar, similarly to those, you know, AI answers that, I, that I've gotten in the past. They tend to be generic, repetitive, um, not much substance there. I mean, it sort of looks good in an introductory way, but you're not really getting anything meaty out of it. So, you know, I've been in the industry a long time. I've been through, you know, copyright infringement cases, uh, you know, where people have straightforwardly infringed my work. It's actually not that hard to get infringing work taken down, whether it's from Amazon or someplace else, because it's usually a pretty black and white. Yes, this has obviously been stolen from you and we're taking it down. But with AI generated work, it's so far, you know, not technically infringing. Um, you know, so it, what is it then? Is it trademark infringement? Maybe, but Amazon doesn't have really clear-cut ways to make that case unless you actually have a registered trademark, which I don't. Most authors don't. And I knew it was going to be challenging uh, to get Amazon to recognize this as a problem, at least at their lower level tier of customer service. And in fact, I wasn't able to get the books taken down on my first try. Um, I did write about it though. I wrote about the problem I was experiencing and pointed to the fraudulent books. And it only took 24 hours before everyone that you know follows what I write and publish was angry on my behalf. And the Authors Guild, which I'm a member of, noticed, and they were going to try and reach out to Amazon to get the books taken down. And so they were eventually taken down, but not through any official process that I followed, only through public pressure and through the power uh, of the Authors Guild. Mm. So it was um, it was a very interesting experience. Yeah, I mean, that is a whole new, you know, possible world of problems that I think many of us never anticipated with AI. I think there are so many people worried about, you know, AI taking our jobs and, you know, uh, not at attributing sources and uh, things like that. But this is definitely, I think what has struck me about this issue was that's a problem that I definitely didn't foresee. And I think most of us did not foresee. And I, I'm curious too. So with them being tied to your account, but there was no way that you were going to get money from those, right? So like, is there any way to find out like who was going to receive the 
the payments out of, you know, if someone buys that book on Amazon, where were, where were the royalties going to go? Is there any way to find that out? Well, so here's the weird part. The books weren't really connected with my Amazon KDP account, which would be like my self-publishing account. It was through someone else's Amazon KDP account, which I know it doesn't make any sense. How could those books then end up on my Goodreads profile? Um, if they weren't something that I directly published, but that's how loose Goodreads is. You know, anyone can actually add a book to your Goodreads profile without your knowledge or consent. Now, I don't know if that actually happened. Um, it could have been done in an automated way. But mm-hmm. in any event, just to make it clear, like this, the money that might have been earned might have been earned on these books. Who knows where they went? I mean, only yeah. Amazon knows the answer to that question. And they're pretty notorious for not releasing any details about who's engaging in this activity, what they've done about the people or the accounts. Like, did they shut the account down? Did they just take the books down and the account remains? I won't know, or I'll never know unless I chose to take legal action, but it's it's not worth it. Like, there's, yeah. I'm not going down that road. Yeah. I mean, that is you know, it's, it strikes me as similar to what, um, like a lot of models have experienced where like, this is an extreme example, but like porn sites are taking mm-hmm. like, a, you know, using their images, creating deep fakes and things like right. that. And it's obviously to a much lesser degree, thank God. But I mean, it's essentially the same, the same hoax going on. Right, right. It's very comparable. And I think what should be frightening to people is it doesn't really matter if you use Amazon or not. It doesn't matter if you're an author or not. It doesn't matter if you have a book. If you have a name that people can profit from, and if it's a name that people might be searching for, there is going to be a motive for people to create these fake materials in the hopes of gathering a few sales off it before someone notices it's not uh, legitimate. Yeah. So are there any things that um that like are that you're doing to kind of protect yourself going forward? Is there anything we can do to protect ourselves going forward for authors, especially who are trying to build up a name? Sure. I mean, what I've done personally is I have in fact been working with a law firm to get a registered trademark. Now I do not recommend that for the majority of authors. I think it's probably more than what's required. It's also expensive when you compare it to other costs you might have for your business. We're talking thousands of dollars and it's not fast. Like I might not have a registered trademark for more than a year and it might not succeed. The failings do do fail (laughs) and you're still out the money. Um, But I decided to go ahead with it because not just for the sake of any fraudulent books that might go up, but I actually also have problems with people using my name as an endorsement or quoting me in ways or using my site identity in ways that make it imply that I'm endorsing. And I need I needed some teeth <laughs> to tell people to knock that off. Um, so I thought for a lot of different reasons, this, this would be a good step for me to take. For other folks, um, I would say joining an author's organization is super helpful, whether it's the Authors Guild or if you're in the UK, the Society of Authors, even the Alliance of Independent Authors for Self-Publishing Authors is very valuable. Um, but I mentioned the Authors Guild specifically because they have like a department that deals with Amazon problems. Like this is how prevalent Amazon problems are for authors and they yeah. have some specialized ways of taking care of that. Um, not every organization is gonna have that capability. 
Um, but they usually have memberships that deal with these problems and they have guidance and steps that you can take to help you be as efficient as possible and not just bang your head up against the wall. So I do encourage that. And then definitely set up a Google alert for your name if you don't have one already or for your book titles, um, just so that you don't feel like you need to be policing Amazon and Goodreads every second of your life to see if this is occurring. Right. Uh, there are right of publicity laws in the United States. Um, they differ on a state by state basis. And I mean, that does give you some legal uh, protection, but taking any sort of legal action obviously is expensive. So it would have to, whatever's happening would have to justify taking that step. And I think most authors aren't, they're not going to have that sort of, you know, bankroll to pursue in, in court. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's all great advice. I know the Authors Guild has been so active advocating on author's behalf in many different ways with AI issues and Amazon, like you said. We're actually going to be chatting with um, Johnny Chinichi from mm -hmm. the Authors Guild in a mm -hmm. few weeks. So right. um, we're excited to learn more about all of that um, from him as well. I know. So, you know, I mean, this is a good indication of how the industry has just changed so drastically in the last, I mean, even in the last year, right? Yes. Since last August was pretty, uh, a pretty big deal in the publishing industry, um, which we talked about a little bit on our podcast in the last season. Um, but you know, how have you seen the industry changing and are there, are there any kind of overarching trends that you see that really aspiring authors, because that's really our, our listeners here, are aspiring mm -hmm. authors there. Most of them are first time authors. They're hoping to break in. A lot of them are working on proposals and they really have this dream of being traditionally published. And part of our role here is to help educate them on here's what it's actually going to take. And here's what the industry is actually like, <laughs> especially yes. in nonfiction land. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what trends are you seeing that, that have kind of affect that day-to-day -day reality for authors? Well, I'll speak to the nonfiction side first on the traditional end. Um, the bad news I'll start with, it's that nonfiction sales have been on kind of a slow decline for the last three to five years, basically since um, President Biden was elected. <laughs> and I'll let people draw their own conclusions from that. Um, but there's just been a huge upswing in fiction sales driven in part by book talk and there and you know they're just publishers have really struggled to get nonfiction sales back up to where they were um, prior to the pandemic nonfiction was carrying the market growth and now fiction and nonfiction have flipped in in what they're doing Will nonfiction come back is like the big question on everyone's mind. And these things are cyclical. So I don't think we're going to just see nonfiction fade, you know, into the background and never return. That said, it is very hard to break out a nonfiction book unless the author has some sort of reach on their own. I'm, and I'm not saying it has to be social media reach. It can be speaking or teaching, or uh, you can be leading an organization or a business. Maybe you belong to a really strong network where you have high visibility. Uh, it could be an email newsletter list. You could have really great media connections, like you're able to get, you have journalists who call you for quotes, or you've been featured somehow, uh, whether it's online media or uh, print. So 
you need something to help the publisher see how the book is going to both generate word of mouth and the, the ways that you have to help generate that word of mouth. And you also have to indicate that there's demand in the market, like there's evidence of need for this. So I think publishers, you know, while they're masters at getting books distributed, and often they're excellent at packaging the book too, you know, as far as the cover and the title and the pricing, they're not very good at creating demand. They just kind of throw books out into the market and hope and pray. So I think authors need to come into the process thinking about how do I indicate to the publisher and how do I indicate to myself, especially if you're self-publishing, that there is in fact demand for this book that I'm putting out onto the market. And the more interaction or engagement you have or the visibility you have with the target reader for that work, you know, the better position you're going to be in, the more you're going to understand how to reach those people. Um, I mentioned TikTok and BookTok and that's what a lot of people are talking about on the fiction end, but it's really hard to say, engineer that visibility, you know, cause it's the book talk community is, is known for authenticity and for the, the recommendations that are kind of very pure and untainted by, you know, self-promotion. And, you know, I've heard it said that TikTok will even dampen the reach of videos that they somehow magically know are of a self-promoting nature. So, you know, it's, um, it's not that you can sell your book just by going on TikTok and talking about it or joining the BookTok community. You actually, you, you need to show that you're there for the for the sake of the community, like your enjoyment of the community, um, people can tell really quickly if you're just there to try and sell something. Um, and TikTok's not for everyone. So I don't think it's not a channel that everyone's going to just feel like they're bringing their best selves. Um, mm -hmm. I would consider myself one of those people. I much prefer text-driven social media or email newsletters. So you also have to think about what you can sustain over the long haul. Um, so I'll pause there. So that's the traditional side. And we, yeah. we can also talk about self-publishing if you like. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it seems like, you know, and this is, this is the, the essential question in all of publishing, right? Everyone's trying to figure out how do you sell books? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's where, that's where everything kind of comes back to and was so, um, you know, was so evident in the trial last August with, you know, Marcus Stoll saying, yeah. well, that's why we're called Random House because everything is random and we don't know what sells books. And yeah, <laughs> was yeah. one of the best, you know, best takeaways for me from that whole thing, because it's, it's so true that no one really knows. Uh, I'm, I know you read Kathleen Schmidt's newsletter. Um, she's uh, for listeners. Kathleen Schmidt is a longtime book publicist and another kind of industry veteran and, um, you know, authority. And she lately has been doing a series of newsletters on the things that actually work to sell books and reading her newsletter. I was just kind of laughing to myself, like, well, there's not much like all these right. things. <laughs> the answer is social media doesn't really work, but it kind of works maybe sometimes in a little, you know, a few little ways and newsletters seem to be okay. Book tours don't really work. Blog tours don't really work. Like nothing, nothing works all that well, except when it does is really right. what it seems like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have indeed been reading that series and I, I have, I have to wonder if Kathleen realizes that the way to summarize what she's written is that I don't really think anything works all that well. <laughs> and I'm not sure if that was her intent. Yeah. Um, but it does go to show that. So like you've got 
thousands and thousands of people trying all of these different things that she's suggested and most people fail. I think that's maybe, maybe the takeaway is that so many people try so many different things in the hopes that it's going to work. And also because maybe they don't have any platform, they don't have any visibility. And so they're grasping at straws and throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. And it, and it all just kind of fizzles out. So there are some things that work. And I think just about any of the topics or areas that she mentions could work, right. but, uh, you know, you, ha- you have to go in with usually some experience, some knowledge, um, and like a strategy rather than just saying, I'm going to try all of these little tactics for one week. And if I don't see results right away, I'm going to stop. Like That's mm-hmm. just good marketing doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that I'm, I'm always curious about this, you know, the, the overall publishing moves, like the different acquisitions that are going on and the strike at HarperCollins last year. And, you know, those kinds of like publishing industry moves that are happening. Do you find that that kind of stuff tends to have a real impact on acquisitions as well? Like I always kind of have this fight in myself, like, do, do our listeners want to hear about industry news in that way? Does it even matter to them? And part of me thinks like, I think it should, and I think it does have an impact, but I'm curious how you see that kind of stuff having an impact or does it? I think it helps people understand what they're experiencing when they know the pressures that are on the industry. Like it helps to know which way the wind is blowing um, or that it's raining and you can take an umbrella. Like it's when you're armed with the knowledge of what's happening in the industry, I think it makes you feel less like a victim or that everything is set against you. Um, And, you know, you're, you're less like maybe less likely to blame yourself or your project for not being good enough when you understand the bigger dynamics that are at play. That said, I don't think it's particularly productive for an individual author to be thinking about, oh no, Simon and Schuster might merge with such and such, or they've just been bought by private equity or, you know, whatever has happened and saying, oh no, you know, know, these things are out of your control, (laughs) you know? I don't think it should really affect how you pitch your book or develop your proposal. Mm. Publishing has been going undergoing this sort of um, this consolidation since the eighties, you know, we're at the end stages of that. Now uh, that ship has sailed long ago. Um, and the good news is that if you are someone trying to get that first book published, it's easier than ever to, well, I guess it's a blessing and a curse that it's easier than ever to set up a publishing company. Um, and there are lots of great quality mid-size houses, independent houses, small presses, university presses, stepping in and doing the projects that, you know, some of the biggest New York houses, they're now too risk averse to take on. So I still think we have a vibrant, diverse, interesting publishing industry, but there's no question. Yes. There are some very big players, Um, and they're the ones who, if you want the really big advance, you've got to go to them, but there's still plenty of opportunity out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well said and always a a good reminder. Cause I do think that often when aspiring authors think about traditional publishing, they're really thinking about the big five and they don't necessarily 
understand or, or think about the benefits of publishing with a small independent press that could really advocate for you and, and, you know, champion your book in a way that a big five publisher might not, and probably would not. Right. So the big five are putting out, you know, usually more than a thousand titles a year. Um, they don't have enough resource yeah. to market and promote those titles. They, it's a lot of, let's see if it takes off or not. And if it does, then we'll support it. And of course, that puts the authors in a very awkward position um, of having to market and promote on their own with very little uh, advice or guidance unless they're getting it from their agent or from their peers, or maybe they have a very proactive editor who's assisting them. But yeah, the help, the help can be very thin. And I see that's one of the biggest disappointments that I see from authors who work with the big five. They thought it was there was going to be so much more <laughs> in the end. Um, and instead, they're like a small fish in a very big pond. Um, my book, my traditionally published book, is with the University of Chicago Press, which I chose to work with very intentionally because they have a writing and publishing series. And it works so well with the other things that they do. And they go to the sort of events where my book should be marketed and promoted, uh, you know, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. If that book had been with a big five, those companies aren't going to the same places. They don't have the same marketing and promotion efforts because they're doing so many other things that are so much more important. So I, my wish for authors is that, is that they are far more strategic in of course, with the help of your agent, if you have one, in thinking about who is going to be the best supporter of the book, not someone who's just hoovering up um, all of the titles to see what what might win next season. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great reminder. I mean, there's a huge value to which bookshelf is my book going to going to fit on? Which bookshelf does it actually make the most sense for my book to be on and to live on? because that way people are going to find it more easily. And so reader or listeners, I always say, I always want to say readers, listeners to this podcast, (laughs) you should know um, Jane's book is called the business of being a writer. Um, And so if you see other books there, well, you have other books as well, right? A couple others. Yes. Um, But this is the, the most recent one. And it's an incredible resource. If you are looking to kind of break into publishing and, and get published. Um, you mentioned platform earlier, and this is one of mine and Liz's favorite topics to talk about. (laughs) Um, and you know, you had a hot sheet last year that where you kind of did this analysis of memoir deals and memoir is one of those topics that people come to us all the time wanting to help with memoir. They, you know, don't understand why they're, you know, they've been rejected and memoir, they're always told, oh, well, you have to be a celebrity and you have to have millions of followers in order to get memoir published. And I love that in this hot sheet last year, you looked at the memoir deals that had been signed earlier in 2022 and kind of asked the question, is this true? Do you actually need to be a celebrity to get a memoir deal? And what you found was no, actually only 25% of the signings in memoir were with celebrities and the rest had some other claim to fame, or it was a particularly timely topic, or there was something else going on. Um, so can you just share more about, cause you, you talk a lot about sales as well, but what do you see as far as trends in signings? For memoir specifically or more generally or general? Yeah. All particularly nonfiction, but in general. Yeah. 
I think that there's definitely a segment of the market when we're looking at the deals that get made that are with what we would call the celebrity author. And a celebrity could be a politician. Uh, it could be a musician, an actor, uh, you know, someone who you recognize their name. Like no one has to explain to you who this person is. There's like built in interest in their life or their life story. Prince Harry, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't, no one has to ask why he got a book deal. You just know why. Um, so there is, I would say like, across all sorts of nonfiction, whether they're writing a memoir or not, it could be a cookbook, you know, it could be uh, a children's book. About a quarter of deals um, are probably in that vein. Then another quarter of deals that get signed, I would say are with people who, they have really significant platforms, even if you don't know their name, or they have really strong media connections, even if you don't know their name. And that is also very attractive to publishers. Um, I think, you know, for obvious reasons, because because of what I mentioned earlier, you have the ability to spread that word of mouth or there's some built-in demand with the people you reach. Your YouTube channel might reach a million people and publishers know there's going to be some percentage of those people, they hope, that are going to buy the book. Then you've got another category, uh, you know, and they don't, you know, take this as like gospel that it's 25%. I'm just kind of, you know, describing the buckets. All so right. then there's a, there's a third bucket of people who are just established authors, you know, and they're people getting signed for their next book. This is good. <laughs> we want to see repeat uh, books from people. You know, we don't want everyone to be on their first book. It usually takes four to five books actually to establish a reader base who will keep coming back for the next thing that you write. It, it yeah. doesn't happen right away. And then we get to the last category, which is probably of most interest to your listeners, which is the people who have no platform and you've never heard of them. The book sold because it's just that good. So that's, yes, that still happens. It happens all the time. And I think people get overly focused on the celebrity deal or, you know, the people with the platform, you know, when you start looking for the negative, it shows up everywhere and people don't even see anymore. The fact that there are debut people coming out all the time. Yes. Yeah. That is something that, you know, reading Publishers Marketplace every day, I am always like looking up the authors and going, okay, I want to know, does this author really have, you know, millions of followers on Instagram or whatever? And more often than not, the answer is no, this person has no social media presence whatsoever. They, you know, have like less than a thousand followers on Twitter or something. And yet they have a book deal with a highly reputable publisher. Um, and, and that's something that happens way more often than authors realize. Um, and so you were describing the, the buckets. I think a lot of Liz's clients tend to be kind of in that second bucket of, you know, the people who are the, the experts, the internet celebrities, not necessarily, you know, actors or singers, those kinds of celebrities, but the, the household names for certain topics, the, yeah. those are tend to be a lot of the clients that Liz works with. Um, I tend to work with kind of that third bucket that you mentioned of like, these are people who are just reliable authors. <laughs> they are professionals in their sphere and, you know, they, they regularly put out books and that's kind of been my history of working with a lot of those authors. Um, so with that fourth bucket though, the breakout authors, how much you said, you know, the book is just that good. And that's what makes it kind of land into that fourth bucket. How much of that do you think 
is because of the idea or because the writing is truly that amazing? Or is it just kind of a stroke of luck? It kind of tickled the the editor's fancy. You know, how where would you ascribe that? You know, it's probably a mixture of story, like if it's fiction or memoir story premise, like it's the sort of premise where you can just see people will be willing to buy it because the premise is so unusual or striking, or it makes you sit up and pay attention. Uh, There are those sorts of books out there. Like if you look at Tara Westover's Educated, you know, what happens when someone who's been homeschooled in Idaho and barely exposed to civilization um, decides to pursue higher education and ends up at Oxford? How does she navigate that? And so it's like this fish out of water uh, sort of story that is always, you know, that's a universal thing, but the particulars are what make it so interesting in her case. Um, So you you know, sometimes it's, I'm not going to say that I haven't read that book actually. So I, you know, whether the writing is good or not, sometimes books can get in just, they sail through because of the premise and the editors or whoever is associated with the deal feel like we can get the writing good enough. (laughs) You know, we can bring in a ghostwriter or we can do whatever it takes to make sure the book is good enough. With a lot of nonfiction, I don't, some people get offended when I say this, but sometimes nonfiction the writing just has to be serviceable. You know, people people are after, you know, what happens next, or they're just really committed to the issue or the topic or whatever is uh, being examined in the book or the benefit of the book in the case of prescriptive nonfiction. So there's something about the premise. Sometimes it's about, there's something in the zeitgeist, like you're addressing something that everyone right now is concerned or worried about. or uh, And so it's, you could call these kind of trendy books and maybe they date really quickly, maybe they don't. Um, but editors and publishers are just really eager to get their hands on, you know, one of the first books in a particular subject matter category. Yeah. Um, and then, yes, there are books that just sell because the writing itself is insanely beautiful or stunning or unique. To me, that's like just a tiny, it's like a tiny part of the books that get signed. And again, that's that's offensive to some people. They feel like the writing should matter above all else. But I think that ignores the big reason that people read generally speaking, you know, even people who are committed book readers, you know, just look at the New York Times bestseller list, um, look at the things that get into book clubs. These tend to be very readable books with issues that really compel you to want to discuss what happened often with other people. Um, Sometimes people talk about the language or the expression, but it's usually about the characters or something about the story or the plot or the twist that generates buzz. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think with memoir, particularly, a lot of authors, you know, want to write a memoir and maybe underestimate the the importance of having an experience to share that is if you want to be traditionally published, what I see with memoir is that it has to be a pretty remarkable experience, um, unless you are that, you know, incredible writer who can take a more I would I'll use the word mundane, but I don't mean it to be in a in a derogatory sense at all, right. but a more, you know, normal average everyday life and create something really beautiful and incredible out of it. But what I see with memoir in particular is that it tends to be for traditional publishers, the really standout stories like educated, like wild, you know, like eat, pray, love. There's something truly different about those experiences that does relate to everyday life in some way and and 
all of us can find things to identify with in those stories, but yeah. it is a, a standout story in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, you should read Educated because it is an incredible book <laughs> and the writing really is that good. <laughs> um, what are you reading right now? Is there anything in particular that you'd recommend? It, my tastes are very strange. Um, like they have nothing to do with the current moment or what other people are reading. So right now I'm working my way through like a 800 page Warhol biography oh, okay. and I, which, which I cannot recommend to anyone. I mean, it's, it's more <laughs> detail than anyone wants about Andy Warhol. Okay. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. That's fair. <laughs> Um, are there any books, you know, obviously yours being the top one, but any other books that you would recommend that aspiring authors read if they are, or, or in just any particular next steps that you'd think if I'm an aspiring writer, here are the top things that I would be prioritizing right now. Sure. Um, one book I've recommended for gosh, it's probably going on 20 years now is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, because it deals yes. with the psychological issues that can prevent you from making progress. The longer I'm in the business, the more I see it as fundamentally psychological, the ability to persist, to sustain, to keep going despite the rejections and, you know, all of the, you get beat up a lot, you know, when you're trying to shop a book around or even just getting to the end of the book, you know, it's, um, it's not easy. And so the war of art, I think, tries to lay clear what these challenges are and helps you recognize thought patterns that are not to your benefit. Um, I think the other issue that people often have is about drafting and revision and knowing when something is done and how to move through that process in an intelligent way. Um, there's a book by Alison K. Williams called Seven Drafts that's I think tries to lay out a structured process for getting from first draft to the final. So that could be useful for those who are struggling with the revision piece. There's also a lot of wonderful story structure guides out there and everyone has their, you know, their own little take on it. Um, and I can't necessarily recommend one over the other, but I think it's useful to at least read one of these books because it's like when people don't know anything about story structure now this assumes you're writing a novel or a memoir um it's like playing tennis without a net you know you don't want to be able to just hit the ball anywhere like there's certain there's certain things that traditional publishers at least expect your story to accomplish and so just picking up one of these guides is useful whether it's save the cat or story grid or there's actually one called story structure doesn't matter. Just find one, find a person you like who focuses on it and, you know, learn the basics. And obviously there's so much written online too, that you could probably pick up the basics just from reading free content. Um, what else? Yeah. The, the others I would recommend are more based on what it is that, what is it that you're writing or, or what stage you're at? I think yeah. Jenny Nash has some good books about, um, preparing to write or planning to write mm -hmm. um, that I found very useful for people. Um, but other than that, I think it just depends on what, what stage or what problem you're trying to, to address. Yeah. 
Well, that's great. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, we, we love the hot sheet and, uh, we love everything that you are putting out. Thank you for giving us uh, a little platform, um, to share some of our articles. That's been amazing. Um, so we are, we're always, uh, referencing a lot of what you do and sharing your work with others. So just want to say thank you again from all of us and from our listeners too, who, who benefit, even if they don't realize it. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being part of the Hungry Authors community. If you like this episode, could you do us a huge favor? Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We would so appreciate it. You can also follow us on Instagram at hungryauthors or hungryauthors.com, our website, to get more information about our masterclasses and upcoming episodes. Remember that you have a story and a message worth publishing. And if you've got the hunger, you can make it happen. Thank you.